it's an honor to have you here. Can you please introduce yourself? Yeah, so I'm uh, Riptide and a Salinity Bug Bounty Hunter. And what is your background? How did you become a Solidity Bug Bounty Hunter? Completely by chance. I was a DeFi degen, and then I, I got rugged once, and then um, because I was aping into things without knowing um, how to understand a contract, and then eventually I got bored of doing DeFi and just wanted to wanted to dive deeper and, and kind of saw the market, you know, wavering a bit and thought, you know, I, I can't do this forever. So I want to have some sort of new skill set. And so I just started learning, um, learning Solidity because I saw the bounties posted and I saw like the, the web two bounties for, for some of the projects, they were super low. And I saw all the Solidity bounties were massive and I thought, well, that'd be cool to do. So. I hadn't coded in, I want to say 10 years, something like that. And so everything was new to me again. Um, but yeah, I just devoted basically seven days a week, all of my time to learning it and just living off savings. And, and just, I just knew that eventually I'd be successful in it. That's how I kicked it off. How long did it take until you start seeing any results? I got my first bounty for like a thousand bucks. And that was probably like three months in to, to learning it. And that like, gave me a little push, kind of validated like, hey, look, I got something from this so I can, I can get something bigger. And um, I think that was the first one. And then I think, I think I got another small one or something. And then it wasn't until I got paid on the Arbitrum bounty where I really kind of hit a stride. And I was, I was at a level where um, I could see bugs that I would have missed months ago. And I was thinking more like a hacker and just thinking with just out of the box scenarios and so much better and much more um, kind of fluent in my, you know, in my little journey of solidity, but I took a while, man. I mean, I started in uh, March of what, 22 and then so six months, six months of grinding until I hit the Arbitrum one. And then after that, it's been probably about two bugs a month that I find. So it's, but it takes a while, man. I mean, I'm always learning new things and new kind of ways to look for things. You know, there's in the kind of bounty community, I guess there's pattern matching and stuff like that, which you can get easy bugs, um, like coterie and stuff, you know, a lot of the duplicates, those are always out there, but in my, you know, in my experience, really those are kind of few and far between, you know, I, I really don't find much on pattern match type bugs, but it's just reading the code and because everyone's implementing things differently and they'll just do something, whether it be um, just some logic in a different way that you have to look at and say, oh, wait, you know, okay, how does this affect things two levels down uh, based upon how this guy did it? So uh, I think just 
just experience, man, just uh, building it up. And, you know, now I'm at a good level. But I, I think if you want to get into it from scratch, it's going to take you at least, fuck, I don't know, man, six months of just grinding to, to get up to speed with everything in the ecosystem. And do you have any technical background before you were a DeFi DJ and what was your profession like? Yeah, I mean, back when I was a kid, I'd, I'd always dug deep on computers. I mean, I got my first computer at like eight years old, um, building computers when I was a kid, hacking some Novell networks when I was a teenager. Um, so I've always had that background. And you know, I used to work at IBM doing some stuff when I was a teenager. So a long time ago. And then I kind of switched paths into banking and I just abandoned that whole skill set. And then so I just really like resurrected the whole thing. Do you think there's a specific reason why you came back to this path instead of going down the uh, banking path? Yeah, well, I got laid off. And so I thought, and I was, a, I was a good banker, I guess, but I wasn't like one of these dudes that like lives and breathes it. You know, I, I did it basically to just kind of, you know, I, I wanted to make money and I, everyone was kind of doing software and all this stuff. And, and I just said, you know, I've done that. I've let me just do something else. And so I, it was cool, man. I liked, I liked the New York lifestyle, you know, all that kind of banking stuff and unraveling all these mysteries for me about how finance works. And so doing that was cool, but I wasn't like, I didn't have some edge and it's hard to have edge in finance anyway, traditional finance, because, you know, I don't have, I don't have the information or the connections that the other guys have in the market. Um, there wasn't anything kind of new. I realized I was bringing to the table anyway, when I talked with clients or anything, it was just kind of rehashing, maybe you had some, some takes on their, their performance or this and that, there's only so much you can recommend or do. It's just not as cool as, as what the Ethereum ecosystem has to offer. So I kind of really liked going back into the tech side because like anybody in the space, it's just so cool. There's so much happening that you can't stay on it. Um, and there's so many smart people in the space too, that you can learn from. And so every day is exciting. Just, just working, just reading contracts, just seeing what's happening in the ecosystem. I mean, it's the side effect is getting paid on a bounty, but the real cool part is just, just being in this experience with everyone else. And what do you think gives you an edge as a security researcher? I think it's a different question for everybody. For me, I think, um, I think what helps is just my curiosity. And if you don't have that, you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't do this auditing stuff because you're looking at code for all day. You're browsing through contracts and you may find nothing day after day for weeks, you know, for months and you gotta be cool with that. So you gotta have the passion. Just, it has to be interesting to look at this stuff and, and just be fascinated on how it works and, and how you can see if you can break it. So I think, just kind of liking to um, 
see what kind of impossible things you could do. It's supposed to be secure. How do I find a way to prove that it's insecure in some way? Maybe it's stealing funds or maybe it's something silly that kind of bubbles into something else. Like, you know, just, just changing some state variables that may have a chain effect on something else um, in another function or, or, you know, another contract that calls it. Who knows? Like that level of complexity is fascinating to me. And I think, um, so the edge would be, yeah, just being curious about it, fascinated about it. And then I think I mentioned before, like my time in the military and banking, it's really attention to detail stuff. And that really pays dividends, just, you know, looking at each line of code and, and just paying attention to everything. And I think maybe I have some, I don't want to say photographic memory or something, but I don't take many notes. You know, I have a little note.txt file, but majority I have, you know, 20 tabs open and all these things. And I just kind of piece it together in my head. And then if I, something clicks, I say, okay, let me, let me write out a little POC and, and see if this actually works. That's wild. So you go mostly by intuition. Yeah, I just, I think one of the other kind of methods I use is just, I look at so many contracts, like I don't have, you know, like my rent's paid, you know, so I'm not stressed out about, oh, I got to find a bug, this and that. It's just like, all right, what's this new project? And I open it up, maybe I clone the repo or maybe there's no GitHub and just, just look on the chain and then I'll get pulled somewhere else because they reference a different contract and then I go check that out and then that has something cool in it. And I could be all over the whole blockchain and just look at a bunch of things. And then by the end of the day, maybe I found nothing, but maybe just mentally I'm like, oh, you know, look at this function. What, what are these guys doing? Why didn't they set their wrapped ETH address to anything on this chain? Like all these little details, I just kind of mentally take notes of. And then a week later, two weeks later, it'll just come back to me. I'm like, oh, hey, you know, I remember like, you know, these guys didn't do this. Oh, this might plug in with this. And sometimes it just clicks. So it's, it's really cool. That's crazy. So you just kind of have a look at them and let your mind do the thinking in the background. And all of a sudden when you're in a shower or something, you're like, oh, I think I got something. Yeah, man. Like another tip is, you know, you get stuck staring at contracts all day and really it's good to just leave and go, go do a workout, you know, go take a walk. And sometimes answers will come to you like that. As simple as that. You don't want to leave the screen, but this is with any coding problem. Um, same with breaking contracts, just leave, man, <laughs> go do a workout. And then you come back and then suddenly everything's clicking. Yeah. I think there's a common fraud among many researchers. The time that you get out of a computer and go do something, something just clicks, something just makes sense. And how do you select the, the bounties you're looking to? Is it just like something you're interesting or do you have any sort of criteria that you have to meet? Because, you know, obviously that might be something that you'd be interested to look into, but you might, the project might not have a bounty or you might not know if the project is trustworthy. So how do you select what code is worth looking into? Yeah, like my, my technique has just been open browser tabs. Like people announce a project on Twitter and then I just open up their, their site, whatever they're shilling 
and then just keeping an open tab. And then that's like my hopefully to do list, even though I, I don't get around to a lot of them because I'll get sidetracked looking at other projects. But I, so like new things that are launched, I think those are cool. Um, just to see if, Hey, maybe you're doing something different. Looking at forks gets kind of old, but sometimes they'll, they'll make some drastic changes to those. And those could be interesting. Um, you know, I've found if I, if I do look at like bounty programs from one of the sites, I'll go, I'm not going to look at something that's small. Um, just because if you're going to have a small bounty, it's probably no TVL or it's probably you know, just a complete Uniswap fork or just something dumb. Um, I don't want to, I don't want to stare at forks. They're, they're dull and they're only vulnerable as far as I know, you know, unless they're misconfigured on like compound or Ave V2, some of that stuff that's been out for a long time. Um, so like, I like picking ones that have big name audit firms on them. If you have trail of bits, you have all these guys, that's cool to find bugs in those. Like I did with the balancer one, it just. You know, like a, like a flex or a bragging right, whatever it is. But internally, you're just like, oh, cool, man. I found something that, you know, these these guys didn't find. And these guys paid whatever amount for that audit, too. And they didn't get this bug. Um, I also do some security reviews. Recently, I did a few. Um, people just reach out and um, we'll make a deal and I'll check out their contracts. That's kind of fun. But I, I only look... Most of the time I'll look at them. I say, Hey, come back when your audit firms already looked at everything. And then I'll check it out before you deploy or before you do your code arena, whatever. So that's been fun too, but I, I don't want to audit anything like a normal audit because it's just kind of, I think it's too easy. You find a bunch of issues and it's just, it doesn't have that kind of thrill of finding something live where uh, money's at risk. So you're looking for the hardest challenge out there. Um, do you prefer doing bounties? Oh, bounties any day of the week. I mean, I, I think audits are pretty boring. Um, you know, I've, I've done them just cause people have reached out and, you know, it's been worth my time, but it feels like work, you know, you got to write up the audit report, this and that, and it's kind of cool to find certain vulnerabilities, but I found some where it's just been so dull, like. <laughs> just missing basic checks. And it's like, man, you know, your internal audit, you, I don't even think you have an internal audit, but they should have caught all this. So stuff like that is kind of dull. I mean, it doesn't beat doing um, live bounties. The downsides of live bounties are, of course, dealing with projects that um, are just, you don't know who you're dealing with. So sometimes, um, I, I guess I've gotten pretty good at developing back channels through to find out who's legit, who's not before you kind of disclose. And then before you do disclose, you have to kind of suss out the project to say, Hey, you know, okay. Are you guys aware of any vulnerabilities around this contract with you know this kind of scope? Because you could disclose and then the project, Oh yeah, we already knew about it. And how do you prove that they did? So you got to protect your own, interest on getting paid because you put in a lot of time and if there's money at risk you should get paid on that and some projects will try to get out of it but some projects um some teams are top notch and so it's really good to find bugs with those teams um, and and get a heads up before you submit you know through the crypto back channels 
And how do you go about setting up those channels? Reaching out on Twitter. Reaching out on Twitter and then people DM me and then I've met people at some of these ETH events. You know, I have like a a low reputation or you know, like a low key reputation with the in within the security space here, which is what I want. So I can get past like all the spam submissions that people get and, and so they see my name. And that's why I do you know, this podcast he asked me to do or write a write up or something like that, because I wanted to elevate myself above just the general people submitting that, because I know a lot of these projects get a lot of spam submissions, a lot of bullshit. And when you actually have something that's legit, people say it's from you and they're okay, hey, we know this guy's legit, let's take a look. And it's just easier to get a response. Do you usually look for projects that have some sort of bounty disclosure or you just look at anything and try your luck trying to get in touch with the team? Um, yeah, it's been both. I mean, I think if they have a decent TVL, there's going to be a bounty. If, if there's capital backing them, there's going to be a bounty or else they're not serious. Like I don't look at anything on certain chains like BSC. I don't even bother, man, because I did once and it was just a scam and just that whole scam chain type stuff. So I try to target like legit projects, um, you know, but if there's no TVL, there's no interest from my mind. So why are you going to pay a bounty unless you're just ramping up and it's a new iteration on something or whatever. I, I don't really have the biggest kind of framework for finding stuff. Really what guides me is, is it interesting? Is it cool? And then secondarily, Hey, do I think there'll be a bounty attached to this? You know, if there isn't, and it's just, um, some low key project, well, you know, I guess it's cool, but you know, I've submitted those too, just to let the team know, but not as cool as when money's on the line. Yeah, for sure. Like something that can be replaced with that rush. If you're fine, like something in a high TVL. Yeah. This ecosystem is crazy. And when you think about it, like you look at the curve reentrancy stuff on the Viper older Viper uh, compiler. And it's just like, when you look at these contracts and see how much of our, the crypto, the crypto TVL, the funds, the money that's locked in there and how much of it can vanish in a second. It's just, it's so bananas. <laughs> this is the, this is the craziest kind of experiment ever. And I think we all, we all take it for granted. Like everyone took the curve contracts for granted. Oh, we're, you know, we're safe. Look how safe this is and tested. And it feels secure, but then you look at the versions of the compilers, Solidity, Viper. Um, you look at like some of the just terrible mistakes that have been made. Look at governance issues where they don't sim their governance changes. There's so many different vectors that you can get caught up in that you know, I'm amazed it all works. I'm amazed that everyone has left the ecosystem sometimes. Uh, but people are after a yield and they're, there's pros to this ecosystem with the ease of use and all the things that we love about it and that we don't love about banking. It just pulls us all in where we all say, hey, we're going to find a way to make this work, mitigate our risks. And, you know, the, I think the DGENs really keep the place going, to be honest. Yeah, yeah, I agree for sure. So if a project's trying to improve their response to bounties for like a guy like you, is there any suggestions you make for them? Like how they can improve their system so they uh, 
you know, are able to handle bounties in a better way? Yeah, well, I think number one, you should be transparent on security incidents with with your project. That's just a that's just a competent thing to do to your investors, which are your users. Unlike uh, you know Arbitrum stuff like this, I mean, these projects don't disclose anything about their security lapses, which is just security by obscurity. It's terrible, terrible practice that's not shouldn't be tolerated within this ecosystem. Um, second. I've gotten a bounty before that took five, I think five to six months to pay out, which is egregious and that shouldn't be tolerated either. And it went to the board and all this bullshit, man. Um, you should be paying out within 24 hours. I've had payouts within, you know, 30 minutes and five figure payouts, 30 minutes, no problem. Um, so pay out quickly, acknowledge the bugs, um, disclose the bugs to your users and have just a transparent method for, for bounty hunters to, to reach you and disclose. And I understand they get spam submissions and all that, but just find a way to balance that, um, to make it a, an easy experience, you know, put all your contracts out there, put a dedicated email, um, certain things like big protocols, like Ave, they have a security email and they don't even respond to you you know you submit a bug and i had to reach out to some guys or oh yeah yeah we got this and it's like dude just make it easy for the guy they're trying to tell you about a security vulnerability you know that should not be difficult and how do you negotiate a bounty because obviously you think your contribution to their security might be worth x but they have a different point of view where is uh, that X divided by 10. So how do you manage to find a common ground? Uh, it differs with each scenario, each project, each team. Um, it's difficult. I almost feel like, you know, that you should have a negotiator working on your behalf. But I mean, it, it depends. Like they, you have to be honest with yourself about the bug. There's been cases where I found a vulnerability and it seemed big, but I was unable to show any sort you like as a, as a bounty hunter, you have to show how it will impact their systems. Don't expect the team to do that for you. You should be able to show, Hey, look, it's, this is going to cause X amount of funds to be lost, um, or whatever lock contract, whatever it is. You have to be able to show that if you can't show it and it just does something, okay, you know, what's the impact? If there's no impact or you can't show it, you shouldn't get paid. You should get paid you know, a lower information, whatever it is, you know, pat on the back. But if you can show it and objectively it's, it's like, Hey, look, the funds are lost. Then you should get paid out the maximum payout for that. And, um, the only problems you have with that is when teams uh, just, they don't want to part with their money and they've already got the information from you. So well, why should they pay out? So that, that negotiation gets tough. There's been progression from, fuck, I always forget his name. Guy who did the ZK bug bounty proofs. Progression on that front where you could show proof of your exploit without revealing it. That's really cool. Um, I think ImmuneFi... You know, their, their process, it's flawed. I think Mitchell, you know, they're working on that 
escrow thing with, with clients and stuff. But as of right now, it's still flawed. Clients can get up there, put something out there, and then they get submissions, don't pay out. And now their protocol is more secure than it was. And, you know, what do they lose? Nothing. <laughs> Big deal. So there's a lot of work to be done and negotiations. You know, hopefully you can vet out the teams through your own experience, your own network. And, um, but it's, it's a, you know, it's a flip of the dice. And I've been called out online from Sam CZ because I was posing a question about, um, like, some theoretical thing about okay if i found this you know when should i just close it now or in the future when tvl is high or something and then he was calling me oh you're not a white hat if you don't it's like dude <laughs> you know i i responded to him but it's like you know you still want to get paid okay you're not putting the protocol at risk but you're just just as a fact if you disclose something say it's a critical bug and there's no TVL locked up or, you know, they're about to deploy the contract or whatever. And then versus they deploy it and the funds are in there, that'll directly affect how much they pay you because they'll look at, oh, well, we didn't do it yet. Oh, you know, it's no funds were in there yet. And that's just how humans think. And so that affects how you get paid. And if you think of it like a business, because it's not completely altruistic, then you, know, you have to make those decisions. Yes, I think that's a hard problem to solve because on one hand, obviously, you don't want to hurt people and actually, you know, steal their money or leave their money to chance to be stolen. But at the same time, you need to feed yourself. You need to feed your family, right? We all have bills to pay. So what do you think that either projects or bug bounty platforms could implement or attempt to implement that would be a step in the right direction. Or let's say if there was a, um, a new bug bounty platform, what would you like to see in it? Honestly, the best idea I've heard now is the, um, is the, the ZK proof for, for bugs. Cause that keeps control and leverage within the hands of the submitter. And, you know, this is just such a different space because versus web two bugs, because so much money's on the line and like, you see how lopsided the incentives are when you have, um, you know, okay, it gets hacked and then, you know, you're not getting the funds back. Like if someone hacks it, even if they're doxxed, right, let's just say some guys doxxed and your protocol loses 90 or hundred percent of its TVL and the address, they know it's so-and-so. Okay, great. Great. Get the police involved. Okay. All that stuff. There's still no guarantee you're getting your funds back. And in the meantime, your protocol could be done. So there's always a deal to be made. Oh, Hey, you know, return some, all right, we'll give you this outrageous bug bounty compared to what was posted. You know, they're on their knees begging, right? That's a, that's a problem with incentives when you look at the actors in the space and there's people that want the ecosystem to succeed. And then there's others that are just solely motivated by greed. And unfortunately money leads people to do a lot of crazy things. And so you're always going to have these actors. So how do you incentivize 
the the guy who's on the line first from you know just black hatting and then waiting for you to offer this 10% bounty versus you know the, and then these bad stories that come out where the guy white hats it and then gets paid nothing a few hundred bucks or a pat on the back um it's a crazy world man <laughs> I, don't, I don't think there's any any solutions but i think i think keeping leverage in the hands of the bounty hunter with doing a zk option there is one of the best steps that I've seen because I think the intermediaries, the immune file, these guys, they, I think they have good intentions, but I don't think that's the solution that, that this ecosystem that is all about self-custody and not trusting a third party should pursue. Yes, I agree that the ZK solution is probably the most ideal one although not easy to implement uh, depending on, on the scenario. You know, you as a researcher might have to do some extra steps and so might have the project. But yes, uh, that would be excellent if adopted like on a holistic scale and made it relatively simple to use. But on the other hand, a more simple solution perhaps could be a system of reputational damage to protocols that don't pay. For example, if there's a, like a agreed upon table of projects that have bad reputation when paying bugs and that could impact them enough where people would draw their money. Do you have any thoughts about that on if that would be possible to, to implement and how that play out? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure someone could professionalize it. Yeah, I, I pushed that on Mitchell before it immunifies. I got, you know, basically said, hey, why, you know, I think he had some resistance to it. I see why, but he's like, yeah, why, why should we do that? Um, and something along those lines. But then I suggested, hey, um, someone else do it. Some guy reached out this bug bounty wall of shame and he put up a little repo where you could submit submissions and everything. I'm sure someone could could blow it up a bit more, but um, that was my thought. I was just have a wall of shame that people could look at and and just make their determinations that way. But I think you need to change the incentive structure. I think we need to have an industry standard agreed upon bounty for, um, and we do have this CVSS structure and all that stuff. That's great and all, but you have to figure in reality with the numbers that are posted. So like I was saying, so if you're going to hack Euler, right, 200 mil, and then you want those funds back, well, how much are you willing to pay? Well, whatever that is, that should be the same agreed upon amount that's available for the bounty. And often those, those uh, amounts differ significantly. And protocols, they need to find a structure to make the incentives match. Um, and until that happens, you're going to see black hats um, continue to do these things. And it's just, it's human nature. I mean, you're going to have criminals and until you have the incentives match, you know, you're still going to have them. But if you can match the incentives, I think we see a lot more white hats versus, you know, I mean, look at this past 30 days. It's been hack after hack, unfortunately. Yeah, I agree. Until the, the incentives can be aligned properly, it's very hard to 
make sure that the bugs are submitted on the right side. And how do you cope with these ups and downs of bounty hunting? What do you mean? Just like not finding anything for a while? Well, both not finding anything for a while. And if you find something, not being sure that you're paid. And even if you're paid, you might not be paid nearly enough. The amount you thought you were going to be paid. Yeah, it's ups, ups and downs, man. You just got to accept it. I mean, it's you kind of know when you have a big bug. So to not get paid on a big bug that's 100% valid just pisses you off. Um, what are you going to do? I mean, you have there's certain ways you approach it. You should really make sure you do everything you can to get paid the amount that's justified and don't slip up on those important steps. You know, just finding the bug, POC, that's half the battle. The other half is successfully negotiating and, you know, finding out, you know, make sure the team knows just, just everything that's involved after the fact is very important to make sure that you don't get blown off and that you get paid. Um, but if it happens, you know, it happens and you have to find a way to, to kind of deal with that going forward. Do you want to, do you want to vet your projects better? Do you want to, um, you know, approach your negotiations better? All these things, I think just you build up with experience over time and you get better. And if you like it, you're going to continue to do it no matter what happens. And that's kind of the scenario that I'm in. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. If you have a passion for it, then you can overcome all those difficulties. But what are some of those pitfalls that you've fallen into or that you, you've learned from experience? Maybe you can share something that you learned through this time that you've been doing bounty hunting and something that could help other people on the same path? Don't assume the project will pay. So I would say vet, vet your teams that you talk to. Don't always go through the platforms, immune file, all these things. All these platforms... They're middlemen, you know, they're making money. They're selling the picks and shovels. You don't need to go through them at all. Even if they have a bounty post, unless they insist that you go through them, okay, great. But I don't see the downside in going through a Telegram group with the devs and, you know, maybe a third party in there just to kind of hopefully keep them in check. Um, because you, you get to the solution so much quicker. You don't have all this bureaucracy involved. And if the guy's legit, you're getting paid. Um, I don't think you have a higher chance of getting paid going through one of these platforms, to be honest. I haven't seen why that would happen. They actually pay out more because they have to pay a piece to the platform and then your bug. So it's cheaper for them to do it this way. Some bigger projects will insist you do it not through platforms because they have something set up or, you know, they're so bureaucratic. They have all these different teams. Um, but I'd suggest just going one-on-one -on -one with the project. That's That's where you get better results, they see who you are, and you know if you have a reputation, that's better too. Um, probably if you have a Twitter following as well. Um, yeah, I'd just say go one-on-one, -on -one and don't just stick to uh, the bug bounty platforms. Yeah, I think it's a great advice that it doesn't matter if you go directly to the projects or through Uminify, you're talking to the same people regardless. Yeah, because the worst part is you submit something and then it's a weekend, whatever, and you don't hear back. You're just checking your email for the next notification. And, you know, hey, let's spin up a Telegram group of the team. You can have this shit worked out within 10 minutes versus waiting for days and days and days. I remember, like, just waiting, man, for on that not wormhole. 
I did one with them. It took a while, but with Arbitrum, there was like so much money at play and I'm just waiting in the dark completely for like two weeks. And that's not cool at all. Like that should be sorted, you know, within uh, a day. Yes, totally agree. And what do you think is the most challenging part of the job of all of those things that you mentioned? Oh man, I'd say just finding the bugs. <laughs> finding the bugs is something that, that everyone's looked through. Um, finding meaning, meaningful bugs in there. That is the, the hardest part, but the most fun part. And it's why guys like me do it. It's just, it's just a cool thing to do, a cool challenge. What is the most interesting bug you found so far, on your opinion? Uh, well, definitely Arbitrum, biggest cash payout, but not the most interesting bug. Easy bug to exploit, more interesting on why it happened, I think. Um, I think, like, I try to do a write-up on interesting ones that I find, because, you know, a lot of the ones are... Um, you know, people like you want to you want to find something that no one's found before, like that Viper one. I thought was super cool because that was like going super deep down and, and actually finding a hey, this. There was actually no lock. You know, we'll we'll write to different storage slots. That's really interesting. Um, I guess the one. I mean, I did the balancer write up on that bug that I found. Simple to exploit. But why did it happen was pretty cool. It's just, just like a simple thing to overlook. Can you describe a little bit your balancer bug? Yeah, it was months ago. But it was it was basically a claim function, a Merkle claim, and a rewards contract. I think it was about three three point two million was um, was able to be stolen. And their claim function, if you had a valid claim, a valid proof, you could basically um, loop the claim function for as many times as you could fit in a block up to the gas limit. So you could, so I think it was a duplicate, um, I forget exactly, but you could say, say you were claiming like, um, one token in that array. It didn't check for duplicates of the same token within the array. I believe that was it. So, so if I was claiming USDC, I just packed the array with, you know, 30 times, you know, USDC tokens for each element. And so it looped through there and it didn't actually check off the bit until the end of the loop. So you could make all these duplicative claims within that loop. And then at the end of the loop, it's okay, this proof is claimed. So that was kind of cool. And that had been looked at by all the top audit firms and no one caught it. And it was live for like two years or something. So that was cool. Yeah, that's wild. And of course, to find a bug like this, you need to dive into the project to a certain depth. So when do you decide that you look deep enough and move on to another audit pro to another project? Oh, man, I, I think when I just get burned out on it, um, it, it really varies, like depending how big the contract is or how, how big the project is. Um, sometimes like they're just really complex. They really suck you in for days. I don't think I've spent more than, I don't know. I don't even want to know, maybe a week on a project um, before I just kind of 
maybe I get too burned out or, or I just think, oh, that's it. I can't find any vulnerabilities in here. And then maybe I'll stalk their GitHub or I'll watch some of their deployer addresses. Uh, but eventually you've got to kind of throw in the towel if you can't find anything. Um, that's just part of the game. You know, these, these contracts are either secure or insecure or else you just can't find it. And so, you know, eventually you throw in the towel and go on to something else, but you make your notes on any potentials. And then that's kind of what my little text file is filled with is like projects I've looked at where there could be something, maybe something else needs to happen. Maybe they need to change a variable over a certain amount or some sort of trigger. And I might set alerts for that, just something to watch or maybe come back to, or maybe there's a specific pattern there that I'm interested in and I'll come back or look at a different code base for that. So there, like, if I look at something and I can't find anything, it doesn't mean I'm done with that project. It just means it's going to stay dormant for a bit. And then maybe I come back to it later. That's super interesting. I think many would argue that one week is a super short time frame for a lot of these projects. I don't know, man. I find bugs, I would say pretty quick. If I look at something for a few hours, I mean, and it depends on the complexity, right? I mean, no project's the same, but the longer you look at something, the more chance of finding something, even rereading the code a little later with maybe you saw a bug somewhere else and then maybe you could apply that there. Maybe there's the same kind of logic being implemented. Um, but no, I, I don't spend, I'm not spending like two, three weeks on a contract. I'm not doing an audit report. That's a thing. I'm not giving you like, I'm not fuzzing all your functions. I'm not doing what these guys do that, that if you want a full on audit, you know, I'm looking for criticals and highs. I'm not, I don't care about your gas usage. I don't care about little low bugs. I'm looking for things that, that are severe. And I think maybe having that internal filter allows me to go a bit quicker. I'm not just checking your deposit and withdrawal functions either. So it's different vectors that could affect, that could be critical and high, but mainly I'm looking for, you know, problems that are significant rather than just, oh, here's a little bug that does something little. If you find those and that's all you could find, okay, fine. But I primarily look for severe bugs. How do you approach the process of finding a new code base and trying to digest it? I just jump in, man. I'll just um, maybe I'll start with some pattern matching. Just you know, some recent bugs that I've looked at. Hey, maybe some some low hanging fruit here. Yeah, ninety nine percent of the time that doesn't happen, but you never know. You always got to check. And then just kind of um, let's kind of look through the code. I don't even know what the projects do. That's a funny thing. Like I'll see something and then I'll, I'll open up uh, their site and I don't even read what it is. I don't even care. Uh, it's probably some, you know, small iteration improvement on something else. And then I'll just look for deployed contracts and I'll just pull up the contracts and just kind of read through the code and just see what they're doing. So I don't really read the comments. I don't read the docs. <laughs> Unless I'm, I'm really deep in something like a complicated project and I don't understand what the fuck it's doing. And then I'll say, okay, oh, there's actually a docs page, which sometimes helps save a lot of time. Like if you look at optimism or something, like some of these complex projects, it's great to read the docs, but I think it's great to just start reading the code and don't, 
don't look at anything. It just keeps you neutral. Don't look at audit reports, anything. Just look at it with a fresh set of eyes and say, okay, what are they doing? And are they doing anything wrong? And do you usually go line by line or do you like have a scroll for the functions, try to get a feel of what the thing is supposed to do? How does that part uh, for you? Yeah, not not initially line by line. I'm just, just looking how things interact with each other and just you know, jump around in VS Code. Um, I used to print everything out, but I don't have my printer because I'm traveling. Um, yeah, just kind of look through it. And then um, sometimes I'll go line by line. You know, once I get past like the overall view of the project and just kind of really dig deep and take some time, um, it really depends, man. Yeah, fair enough. And why did you use to print the code? I think it's great to just get offline. Just don't stare at the screen. Don't jump around. Just it keeps you focused and you're able to just statically kind of think about the code, print it out in front of you. And it, you may flag a lot of false positives. You may say, okay, I'm going to look up this in VS Code and search over this once I'm done. But you highlight a lot of things to look at. And I think it's a really good process. For, number one, because you're not staring at the screen all day. You're just staring at some paper, which is just better for your brain. And number two, you slow down. There's no distractions. There's no Twitter. There's nothing else going on. And you're just able to focus on understanding what's going on with the code. You know, the bad part is you, it takes a while and it's kind of cumbersome to flip through pages, but, um, overall, I think it's a good, good strategy, a good tactic to really just patiently look through the code. Have you ever looked into getting a remarkable, it's basically a tablet that resembles paper as much as you can is I think one of the best technologies we have so far, I don't have one, but I've heard lots of great things about it. I think they got, she has one and he loves it. Ooh, uh, I'm just, I'm just looking it up now. It looks, looks very cool. Oh yeah. I like it, man. Man, check this uh, out. This, this podcast is sponsored by remarkable. No. Fuck yeah. Oh, oh should I leave a Amazon link down below? <laughs> <I'll become> a... <laughs> oh, fuck man. 349 euro. Jeez. This better be good. <laughs> yeah, it is crazy because this... all it does it's paper stuff. Like you don't have any apps, anything. It's like fancy paper. Mm -hmm. I'll check it. You also mentioned that having a following on Twitter and building yourself a reputation helps when getting in touch with projects. How do you build that reputation? What advice would you give to hunters trying to build a following on Twitter, build a reputation. How do you go about doing that? Uh, if you find something big that gets you a lot of followers and you get pumped up pretty quick, I found. Um, but if, you, if you're not finding any criticals, you can still um, pump up your reputation. I've seen other guys just do the code arenas and posting, you know, hey, look, I got first on this competition. I think that's cool, man. I think that is that gives you some weight. Um, and then just um, yeah, tweet relevant things that that could be things that just people don't think about in the ecosystem that you see in your job researching these contracts because anyone that does this knows like the underlayer of security in Ethereum or at least a piece of it where you've seen projects that have bugs that are live that they would just won't fix because they're not 
they're not as severe as not severe enough to warrant redeploying the whole suite of contracts, but they're still significant. I've seen that in quite a few protocols. And so I got less and less surprised when I'd see, okay, so you, you're just going to leave it. Okay. All right. And you know, lenders or borrowers can exploit these things for financial advantage. Um, but no one's going to talk about it. So you have like this, you have this alpha and maybe you can choose to selectively share certain alpha that could help people out there. I think that's beneficial. So stuff like that to kind of build up a profile. And then I think meeting people, even DMing them on Twitter, other security guys and talking about stuff is good. I have a few telegram chats with some guys. I've met some of these guys at ETH events. Um, you know, just anything to build yourself up, but like show, show results. If you're good, then, Hey, do a write up on whatever, any bug that you found. Man. And uh, I think that helps everyone reading write ups. I always find those interesting. I think everything you mentioned, if you can do either one of these really well, or all of these really well, you'll be building your reputation in no time. Do you have any future plans other than bounty hunting? How do you see the market evolving in the next few years? Maybe we'll be replaced by some sort of new form of AI with all this, you know, all the bug bounty hunting. I don't know, man. I don't think it's that mature yet, but I feel like best practices are evolving and they're getting better. Um, it's going to be challenging, but I think just like any software, there's always bugs to be found. Always. I mean, look, man, web two, there's your example. Look, your phones, like there's always zero days out there. So when that ceases to exist, I think that'll cease to exist in web three. I think web three is just as vulnerable just because people always want to change things. Humans want to improve upon their own designs. Even if you have something that's very functional and it works and there's no security holes, like look at liquidity V2. There was a lot of forks off that one. I think the design was very secure and now they're launching V3. They just have to improve upon it. You know, there's, there's reasons why I have to do it, but doing so now you introduce new code. Now there's untested things and that leaves open vulnerabilities and humans make mistakes. And the more humans you have in your project, the more chance of mistakes being made. Um, so I think there's always going to be a role. For us, I think low-hanging bugs are, I wouldn't say anything in the past, unfortunately, because the nature of this ecosystem is you have permissionless um, access. So you may have all these best practices, but there's no stopping the dude from country X deploying something that's cool, getting a lot of TVL, and then who's behind it? It's him and his buddy who are you know, 18 years old and they see best practice. They don't have that kind of background. And so you're going to have security vulnerabilities. So I think there's always a role, man. I think just, just be interested in the ecosystem and just know that there's bugs out there. Um, even if everyone's looked at it, you know, just always assume that there's something wrong and that that'll keep you going in this ecosystem. And what is the most interesting project for you at the moment? Right now I'm looking at, I don't know why I'm looking at old contracts. So I'm looking at, um, some old curb stuff, old liquidity gauges, 
deployed two years ago. Just, I don't even know why, man. I just think, it's yeah. I, <laughs> no, no, not even that, man. I like, um, I like Viper. I like how it's written. Um, so I've been looking at a lot of curve stuff. And I don't know. I, I like some of the old contracts just to see, you know, maybe people forgot about it. Maybe there's something, you know, that, that was missed, um, you know, before I started that I like to look at. Um, but, but, you know, while I, while having said that, I'm also looking at, um, some projects that just deployed some new versions of some code. They switched away from, uh, any swap after the obvious, and they went over to layer zero. Need some new projects I'm looking at. Um, so yeah, I, I look at anything, honestly, but that's, that's what I'm looking at today. I guess curiosity is something that just kind of happens sometimes there's not really much reason about you know that's the reason why some people are interested in airplanes and some people are interested in flowers or whatever you know it just kind of happens to be like that yeah yeah true so you travel around with your family how do you do that because it's already hard to have a regular trip with a big family but you do a nomad lifestyle with your family. How is that even possible? It's, it's crazy. I've been doing this for nine months now. And the only reason I'm doing it is because it just happened. We had a, a real estate deal kind of bomb out. And so we rented out our house already. So we just decided to travel the world and, you know, Airbnbs and all this kind of stuff and all over the globe with a couple kids and a wife and, um, it's not easy, man, but you got to carve out time to work. I still do it seven days a week and just build those habits and wherever you're at. I mean, just pull your laptop open and start doing something, put some headphones on. It's not ideal a lot of the time, but, um, it is doable. You know, I have found some good bugs while doing this surprisingly, but I mean, it's, I'd rather have three screens in front of me in my own office, no doubt. And I'm actually closing on a house next month in Italy. So I'll be abandoning the nomad lifestyle for a while. Thank God. But it can be done, man. If anyone wants to do it, I mean, I, I'm proof that you could do this with a family and still bug hunt and everything. Just gotta, just gotta do it right. Well, congratulations on the new house. How do you how do you construct the habits to work every day when you're traveling like this? Oh, it's discipline. Um, you know, I've been doing the same thing with exercise, not seven days a week, but always maintained good habits. So with your eating, you know, you should have good habits, especially later in life, um, because you build those up in the early stages of your life and you'll fall back on those and be comforted by those type of habits later in life if you build those when you're younger so that's what i've done for me exercise has always been important my diet has always been important and those right there are the bedrock of sustaining yourself mentally and physically as you age and so if you apply that to work as well like you don't have to be the smartest guy but if you're persistent with any work, you will succeed in my view. And I think a lot of people out there are quick to give up 
and they're not persistent and they expect outsized returns for little work, essentially gambling or chance. And that sometimes that works, which gives us a false impression on, on how to achieve success. But in the end, you just need to just do things, get up, do the work and do it again the next day and continue to do so and just be a man about it and just fucking do it. That's it, man. That's the, the secret. Just fucking do it. I like it. And obviously you might not have access to the gym if you're traveling around. So do you usually do like bodyweight stuff? Oh, there's always a gym, man. And the gym is just something to hang on a bar outside or a local park or whatever it is, man. And, um, yeah, calisthenics is what I usually do. So you can do so much with, with uh, a pull up bar. It's amazing. And so a lot of, or just do uh, burpees, you know, smoke yourself within a minute, two minutes. So it's, there's never an excuse why you can't stay in shape. It's just people want specific things and gym. you don't need all that stuff, man. You can get smoked in five, 10 minutes, just in your living room. It's just, are you able to do it or not? Or you want to come up with an excuse? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's very true. You don't need anything, not even a pull up bar. You know, if you have a ground to stand up on, you're pretty ready to start a workout. Hey, I got a jump, man. That's a good man. It was a pleasure having you on. And I hope to hear many bugs coming from you. All right, man. Cheers. Thanks for having me on. No worries. Thank you. See ya.